Seven years ago, God called uh, about 10 of us to begin what would be the foundation of this church. And uh, we, uh, after seven years, are venturing out now to plant another church and to plant more churches, not only in the city of Chicago, but larger parts of the world. And this morning is kind of a special Sunday. For some of you, this is great news. For the rest of you, you might be a little disappointed, although hang in there, because uh, I think you will be, uh, what's the opposite of disappointed? Huh? Excited? Okay. Yeah, you'll be undisappointed, okay, or excited, whatever. I, I just made up a word, undisappointed, because I think God would speak to you today. Um, <clears throat> we are, we are going to talk about the subject of why are we planting churches? Why are we planting churches in the city of Chicago and in larger parts of the world? Uh, this is going to be very much along the lines of the sermon series we've been on because the church planting theme will come up again and again as a way that God used the church of Jesus Christ to affect the world via his kingdom. And so what I want to do today though is this, as much as I want to get into kind of the practical why of church planting, I need to take some time to lay a groundwork for essentially a reminder of what a church is. Who are we? This body of believers. What is a church? Because if we're going to plant more churches, it's it's important to ask, what is a church? Because if we're going to reproduce more of this, we better know what more of this is. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. So so you need to know what that is. And so I want to take you all the way back to Exodus 19, okay? And do a little Old Testament, New Testament kind of reminder of what is a church? Who are we? Why are we here? Pastor Michael prayed, like, God, help us to know who we are and who you are. Well, this passage right here reminds us of this. Exodus 19, 3, then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Love that. A nation, a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. In this amazing passage in Exodus, God reminds the Israelites of two things. One, he reminds them of their identity. Who are they? What are they? He says to them, you are my people. Takes it even further. He says, you are my treasured possession. How many of y'all know that you are God's people, his treasured possession? How many of y'all know that? You know why that's so important? Because the way we become his people and his treasure possession, did you catch that? It's not anything that we do. It's all God. It's all God. Anybody here decide to choose God before he chooses us? Anybody here theologically really think that you were seeking God before he sought you? Anybody? The important thing that God reminds us in Exodus of the people of Israel is he says, look, you didn't choose me. You didn't choose, you weren't seeking me. You were intentionally wanting to be in relationship with me. But out of grace and out of mercy, I came to you. I chose you, made you my treasure, possession, value you, people of worth. From beginning to end, God says, I did the work. I did the work. He reminds them. Now, throughout the Old Testament, do you know that God will remind them of this over and over again? Anything that God, listen, anything that God calls his people to do, he doesn't just come and say, well, just do it. Well, just do it. Well, just do it because I told you so. Just do it. He comes to them and anytime he says, I want you to do something, he starts with this thing of, I chose you. You're my people. You're my own my treasure possession, therefore. 
Here's an example. Do y'all hear the Ten Commandments? <laughs> I'm talking about the Moses movie. I'm talking about the actual Ten Commandments. Did you know that before God gives the Ten Commandments, he has the audacity to remind them of this? Sound familiar, maybe? In Deuteronomy chapter 5 or 6, I am the Lord, your God. Does it sound familiar? I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And therefore, then he lists the Ten Commandments. He is saying to them, listen, everything that you do, obedience to me, it's founded upon this critical truth. You are my people. I am your God who are in covenant relationship. You know what the Ten Commandments are? It's a covenant. It's, it's a marital vow. Ten commandments are not given to God's people because he says, if you want to earn your relationship with me, if you want to be people approved by God, he says, you've already in. You're already approved. Remember, I chose you. Remember that? You're my treasure possession. You're my beloved. You're the bride of Christ. So therefore, do these things, not because you have to, but because you get to. Do these things because you're left for me, not because you're trying to earn my approval. Listen, listen. God's coming and saying, whether you do these things or not, whether you these plainly, God would say this. Did you do anything to get in on this covenant relationship with me? And the answer is no. Then what makes you think you can do anything to be put out of this covenant relationship with me? Does that make any sense? See, we, we, we kind of go, God, yes, it was all about you. It was your grace. You, you, I was a wretched sinner. You pulled me and you called me treasure possession, God. I had nothing to do with all grace, all mercy. And then we turn around and we act as if <laughs> none of this matters. God comes along and says, your obedience to me, your willingness to obey my commands is about this relationship. So what does this mean? In our church, we say this over, you need to know this as God's people, as God's people. God says to you, there are two motivations to why you obey, why you serve, why you give, why you do anything in your life. One is so that you can approve God, you can accept God's approval, you can earn God's acceptance. One is so that you can get God to love you. One is because you're afraid of punishment. One is so that you can get God to give you things. That's, we call in our church, what? Say it with me, religion. The gospel motivation is totally different. It comes along and says, God, I can't do anything to get out of this relationship. Your grace, your love, your mercy, you have poured it out to me, God. And because I'm so blown away by that, because I'm so amazed by that, because I'm so just absolutely enthralled by that, because I'm so absolutely just blown away by your beauty, by your grace, by your mercy, God, I give my life to you. I obey. I serve. I live my life for you. Two totally different foundations. Do you get that? Because get your ability to live the Christian, like some of y'all sitting there going, I get it here, but I don't get it here. You're not hearing God's word. He says, you are my people that I chose, that I made my treasure possession, and nothing can do to change that. And you living the Christian life is just getting to that point of just understanding that, embracing that. Living your life. God says over and over again, everything that he commands the Israelites to do in the Old Testament, he always says, I am your God. You are my people. I am your God. You are my people. I am your God. You are my people. Is that good news to anybody? Oh, that's amazing news. 
Because if you want a motivation to live your life for something radical, that has to be it, man. Because if it's about earning God's approval, acceptance, and fear of God's punishment, religion has no life to it. None whatsoever. God gives them their identity, but check this out. Within their identity is also their mission. Did you catch that? What does it say in verse 6? He says, you are to be for me a kingdom of priests. He rescues them for a reason. He doesn't rescue them so they can sit around and talk about how great it is to be forgiven. He says, you are to be for me a kingdom of priests, holy nation. What does a priest do? A priest mediates the divine. A priest shows you what the God is like that that priest is representing. A priest shows you what that God is like that that priest is representing. And so God's call, amazing call to the nation of Israel is this. I want you to live in such a way, individually and corporately, that when people see you, they would see this God that you worship. This God who called you and chose you out of all nations and considers you his treasure possession. God said, I want you to live in such a way that the unbelieving world will take a look at you and see this amazing God. That's your mission. It's not to gather for meetings and worship, hear a sermon, go home, gather for small groups. Those are parts of it. But the ultimate mission is, can the world, unbelieving world, come up real close and see a kingdom of priests that's representing this God? God's saying, I'm I'm looking for a body. I'm looking for a physical, tangible body that will live out in the world who I am. The church it's not a new idea. The church is an old idea. It goes all the way back to Exodus. Because when we come to the New Testament, what is a church? What is a church? We say it's not a building, it's not an address. What is a church? Well, here's what a church is. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Brief review. We've been in the book of Acts, so this should be sound familiar to you. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach and we've said from the very beginning of the sermon series that the book of acts is about what jesus continues to do book of luke first part of two books luke wrote both luke and acts and he says the first book that i wrote theophilus book of luke was it was it was it was a chronicle of who jesus was and what he did while here on earth now he has ascended to heaven but check this out theophilus i I am going to write to you about what jesus continues to do today amongst us in our world today and when you read the book of acts you don't see jesus anywhere You know, he appears a couple times. But what do you see? You see the church, the birth and the growth of the church. And so Luke had the foresight and the audacity to say, check this out. Here's what a church is. The church is that very tangible embodiment of Christ that continues to do today what Jesus was about. And so once again, Exodus 19, when the world gets up real close and sees you and your corporate life together, people ought to be able to see who? They ought to see Jesus Christ. Oh, man. Wow. How do you reconcile that with how we view the church? How do you reconcile how we view the church, you know? Meetings, events, sermons, songs, community groups. Once in a while, for some of us, doing good deeds. What the, what, the, what the Bible has to say about what a church, this living, tangible, breathing, live organism, movement of people. So one last thing before we kind of jump into this thing. What was Jesus about? What was Jesus about? Because that gives us further 
uh, clarification, if you will, of our mission. Jesus was about the kingdom of God. Last Sunday, Easter, we, we celebrated how the resurrection of Christ completed the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And the definition of kingdom of God, brief review, you guys, remember the kingdom of God is a renewal of all creation by the reentry of God's ruling powers through Christ's death and resurrection. And we've been saying that God's res- uh, God, through the death and resurrection of Christ, uh, ushered the kingdom of God. And what the kingdom of God reminds us is that God isn't ultimately about some sort of an escape plan. You know, you die, you're forgiven of your sins, so you can go to heaven. God's not about an escape plan, but God is about an ultimate restoration project back into this world in new heavens and new earth. What God accomplished in the resurrection of Christ is to remind us, here's the mission of the church, you ready? God began this amazing work of beginning to heal and restore all of creation. That's what we say in our church all the time, you guys. Everything we do matters. Everything we do matters in our church. Every single thing you do matters. You know why? It's not in vain, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Furthermore, we have the motivation to do it because God says, when I come back, I'm going to finish that work. I'm going to finish that work. That work of love, that work of justice, that work of giving of yourself to bring about God's kingdom, shalom, peace, just, I'm going to finish that work. So everything that you do in your school, in your workplaces, in your jobs, everything that you do, you know, it's kind of like Anna. Anna Dierenfeld is here this morning. Uh, she, she sent an email, um, and this is one example of what we're talking about. She sent an email. She is going to Haiti uh, this upcoming week. She went to Haiti 10 years ago, and that's where she felt the call to be a nurse. Now, Put in the blank, whatever, nurse, so if some of you is a doctor, teacher, whatever, you know, engineer, janitor, nurse. Here's what she says. She just gives brief some background, you know. For example, uh, the unemployment rate in Haiti is like 60%. Um, uh, approximately 12% of Haitian children die before they reach one year old, and a third of Haitian children die before their fifth birthday. Um, when she gets there, because there's such lack of medical care, there will be about a, a, a thousand people that they'll care for because there's only one in 10,000 Haitians have direct access to medical care. The overwhelming need of what sin has done, it's, it's broken, utter brokenness. Now, and here's what she says. She says, it's only nine days and it'll help a little bit, but we won't change the world in nine days. I know we can't change the world in nine days, but I know that we can bring hope of Christ to people who need to hear that Jesus Christ loves them and hears their prayers. Our mission individually and corporately is to look around our city, our community, and the world and saying, where can I come? You know, you know what we are to be as a church? You know what a church is? See, the world hears this whole resurrection of Christ 2,000 years ago, and he's begun this amazing healing project, right? But the world looks at the city, world looks at the community, world looks at the world and go, where? Right. Show me. The church's mission is to say to the world, right here. The church's mission is to say to the world, you want to see where there are glimpses of how there's the rule and reign of Christ is bringing about healing, restoration, the shalom of God. You want to see a glimpse of how this is happening? The church's mission is to say to an unbelieving world, it's happening here. Check it out. It's happening right here. I know not completely, not fully, and we mess up and we learn and we grow, but there are glimpses of it right here. Oh, my gosh. 
See, that's why sometimes when I think about our culture, our world, and the church's inability to make an impact in evangelism, so on and so forth, part of me, part of me says, like, why would they believe about this astounding work of God when the very thing that's supposed to give a foretaste of glimpse and a taste of this is the last thing that people would look to to say, where is it? Does that make sense? Oh, the mission is huge. The mission is enormous. So we say in our church, what are a couple ways that we go about doing that practically? One way is that we need to form a culture that's counter to the larger culture. What do I mean? How we live together matters. So let me tell you something. When inside the church, there is no forgiveness. When inside the church, we hold grudges. When inside the church, we don't reconcile. When inside the church, we live and refuse to forgive and we refuse to love. When inside the church that happens, we are fundamentally at odds with the core thing of what the gospel and the kingdom is, which is that he came to reconcile the world. We will never, ever tell the world that there's valid testimony among us if you refuse to forgive and to love your own brothers and sisters. This is why forgiveness, reconciliation, is so absolutely dangerous and critical to the church. Because how in the world is the world supposed to see reconciliation, forgiveness that he ushered in on a cosmic scale when they don't even see it on an individual scale? Forming a counterculture means that we do that. Forming a counterculture means the world goes, the people in our culture, race, ethnicity, they get along. Oh my gosh, how are they getting along in your countercultural community? The rich and the poor that are separated by a gap that can never be bridged in our culture, how are they living in unity, in mutual care and service, caring for each other? How are you, how are you guys doing that? Our mission is to to, to, to live as this countercultural body, to form a counterculture that the world, I mean, I could list on, there's a list of things that would display what this counterculture is like, but the, the second ramification is we don't just do this and say, hey, the world, watch us. Hey, the world, watch us. We, 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 we do this, but then we also move out. There's an, we are the agents of the kingdom aspect to it, you see? And we work and live for the good of the city as a whole. Because when the world says, the kingdom of God brought about peace and justice and love. Where is it? Christians say, let me show you where it is. And we move out and live out the dynamics of the kingdom in our spheres and influences. Are you listening? That we're called to be agents of that. We're called to be agents of that. That's our mission. <laughs> Uh, is, this, is this like an enormous mission? Anybody else feeling like, oh man, I don't, can we, anybody? Why do you think Jesus comes along and says, I'm going to need you, I'm going to need you. Why do you think Jesus comes along and says, guess what, before you do anything else, I'm going to send you a little gift, and the gift is called the person of the Holy Spirit. Because y'all can't do this on your own. It's a pipe dream. Isn't that exciting? Do you remember when we began the sermon series, how time and time again, we oops, stopped, oops, stopped and said, Holy Spirit, remember Holy, oops, stopped. Holy Spirit, why? Because the reality, this is a pipe dream without the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. Amen? Yeah. So it's hard. It's like, oh, it's meant to be. Come on, give me a break. We're supposed to look at that and go, God, I can't. And for God, the Holy Spirit to come to us and say, of course you can't, but I can. And I will in and through you. That's great news. That's great news.
Now, why are we planting a church? What I just talked about, we want to do that. And we want to do it in many, many parts of the city and many, many parts of the world. How do we go about doing that? Okay. When we talk about church planting, usually people have three different responses. There are people who think it's a dumb idea. And then there are people who think it's a great idea. And then there are people who think it's a great idea but have absolutely no reason why it's a great idea. Okay? So I hope to hit everybody today at some point. Okay? By the way, for those people who say, why do we need to plant churches? Isn't that like dividing a church? By the way, can I just ask, how many of you are completely unfamiliar with this whole concept of church planting? Because you've never been a part of one, exploiting this church, and, and just never, raise your hands, raise your hands, raise your hands. Yeah? Okay, okay. Seriously? Please raise your hands if you've never, church planting, like, no, nah, no. Nah. Maybe, maybe I didn't need to preach a sermon today. I go, because apparently like 80% of our church like totally gets it and knows it. They're like, oh, I get it, man. Why are we talking about this today? Well, for the 20% of us, would the rest, 80% of you, bear with us. Okay. Are we planning churches? Nathan said, Peter, the part that I really loved was a theological part. Of course you do. You're a seminary student, okay? And then the, and then the rest of this, you know, one well, of the practical portions are the ones that will resonate hopefully with you guys. Why are we planting churches? Here we go. Let's go right through it. One, we want to be true to the biblical mandate. We want to be true to the biblical mandate. And under this, we have, we have like three, 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 four little subpoints. Here we go. We want to build a mandate, meaning one, we, we, want, we know that the kingdom of God is here. And kingdom of God is coming in fullness. Now, guys, check this out. Everybody, everybody, everybody. Woo, look up here. Why is that important? Why is that important? Pam's like, Pastor Peter. Because <laughs> I'm so excited about it. I'm so, kingdom of God is here. Check this out. Why are we planting churches? Kingdom of, look, look. Jesus says, through my death and resurrection, I have begun the process of healing and restoring all things. And we go, all things, everywhere, but I don't see it. It doesn't matter. It's there. All things. If you believe that I've risen again and started, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the old has gone and the new has come. God says, I am at work everywhere in the world in ways that you may not see. Why is this critical? Application. When we plant churches, we never, ever plant churches with the mentality that says, we're here to save y'all. We're here to bless you all. We're here because y'all need us and need you. Do you know why? Do you know why? If you believe the kingdom of God is here, Jesus, hello, showed up way before we ever got there. Can I hear an amen? Jesus showed up and he got there. Do you know why Western missions has done such harm to the rest of the world globally? I didn't talk about this morning. Because people totally don't get this. That's why we have this mentality. We will save those people. I, I don't know why. Like, we, will, we will save those people, you know. We will go and we will deliver them. We will da-da-da-da. And Jesus is going, hello, the kingdom of God doesn't arrive when you get there. The kingdom of God arrived 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ came out of the grave. So y'all need to hear this. And for those of you that are like going on mission, doing ministry, don't you dare, don't you dare have that attitude across your mind like, oh, they need me, you know, I'm the, Jesus Christ showed up long before you ever got there. Is that good news? It's Wow, there's so much more into it. My morning service, morning service is really, really. Jesus Christ. Didn't come to Logan Square when new, you know, it's like new community. We are here, Logan Square. God is going to, hello. God says, I was there like 
Like before the foundations of the earth was laid, man. So think about how much it changes our perspective. Number one, it humbles us. Because we don't go into places when we plant churches or when we go on global missions with this, they need God. We go and say, God, you're already at work. You're already at work. Where are you working? Where are you working? Let me go join you in on that. And secondly, it gives us boldness. Somebody asked me today, how you know that the uh, uh, Bronzeville church plant will succeed? You know what I said? I said, I don't. I don't have that much faith in us as a church, but I have a lot of faith in an amazing God. Amen? Amen. We might not be an amazing church, but we serve an amazing God who is already at work. And all we're doing is showing up and saying, God, where are you at work? Just want to join you in that. The whole paternalism thing just bothers me to no ends. Not just because it's superiority, because you just don't understand the Bible. Should I keep going or did you get that point? Did you get that? You got that point? Okay, so why are we planting churches? Because those people need, <laughs> we need God. <laughs> God's already at work. So you know what this means? This means somebody goes, so how do you know where you want to plant churches? I said, it doesn't matter where we plant churches. What do you mean? I said, well, we're going to be strategic in saying we're going to plant bronze and other places where there is a diversity, racially, culturally, socioeconomically, because we want to reflect the kingdom. But at the end of the day, it's like some of y'all like pray like, God, is this your will? Is this your will? Because I don't want to make the wrong decision, you know, so God, I need to pray and say, make sure it's the kingdom of God is here. Make up your stupid mind and just go. Uh, Can somebody send a memo? Please uh, put the second service on the podcast, okay? All right. Anyway. And y'all need to put that on there too, okay? Don't edit that part out, okay? (laughs) Secondly, okay, secondly. Jesus' essential call was to plant churches. I know, this is, look, you guys are going, Jesus never talked about church planting. Yes, he did. Where? Matthew 28. How? Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. Check this out. You know, many of us, we grew up thinking that verse is about decisions for Christ, right? How many decisions for Christ did you get? How many people did you get to say, I want to believe in Jesus? That that verse has nothing to do with some decisions for Christ and how many convert. That verse has everything to do with the fact that we are called to make disciples, Christ followers. Now check this out. That doesn't happen at events. That doesn't happen in programs. You know where that happens? The, the real key of that verse is baptize them in the name of the Father. What is baptism? Baptism is in one hand a public declaration of my personal identification with Christ and his death and resurrection. But more importantly, in the New Testament and in Acts, you know what baptism is? Baptism is your incorporation into the larger body of believers where you find accountability and community. So literally that command is, hey, make sure you guys are producing Christ followers who are becoming Christ followers in the context of a group of believers who are in community. That's the great commission. Where does that happen? Where does that happen best? Where people become Christ? See, decision for Christ. Our church, we don't make old, you know, people sometimes go, so how many decisions for Christ this past year? I give them the quote Billy Graham actually gave. You all know Billy Graham? Billy Graham, he's a like really old guy. He's a, I say that every, I'd say because there are people, 
There are people, some of us grew up in church and are old enough to know, but there are a lot of people like, who's Billy Graham? Billy Graham is a phenomenal man of God that God used, perhaps one of the greatest evangelists of all time, especially in this, in, in, in this recent history. Somebody asked Billy Graham after a conference where hundreds of thousands of people attended and thousands of people went up. Somebody asked him and said, so Billy, how many conversions were there? His answer, ask me in 10 years. He said, ask me in 10 years. Why? Billy Graham is a biblically knowledgeable man. And he knows. Sometimes decisions for Christ, right there and then, is like genuine new birth, genuine yes. But for most of us, when they make a decision for Christ and stand up, come up, raise your hands in churches, that's the beginning of a journey for a lot of people that says, I'm interested. How do I? You're you're nodding. Some of you are nodding your heads, right? That's how some of us became Christian. That's where our friends are. So again, how does then that happen that person becomes a Christ follower after the initial decision to say I want to follow Christ when they can walk alongside study the Bible with be in community and fellowship with the group of believers who provide accountability and shepherding care does that make sense Jesus' commission was to plant more churches okay third uh, Paul's whole strategy was to plant urban churches oh by the way real quote I uh, real quick quote. Uh, some of you know C. Peter Wagner, who's one of the, one of the more well-known missiologists of our time. C. Peter Wagner said this, planting new churches is the most effective evangelistic methodology known under heaven. Planting churches, new churches, is the most effective evangelistic methodology known under heaven. Okay, so see, Paul's whole strategy was to plant churches. And we, we've studied this. Paul had essentially two overriding assumptions went into a place. He said, where can I go to the largest city because if I want to reach that entire region, I want to reach that city. And when he went to the city, more than anything else, he planted churches. And in Romans 15, he has the audacity to say, when I've done that, I've gone to the largest city, I've planted churches. When he's done that, he says, I have no more work to do. Isn't that amazing? He says, if I can go to every major city and plant churches, my job is done and the gospel will spread because that's the way that the entire country and region will be reached. Titus chapter 1 verse 5, he's speaking to Titus and he's essentially about to leave and he says to Titus, I want you to appoint elders in every town. What's that? Elders are pastors. And he says, the way that you will fulfill the mission of God is these churches that I planted, I want you to appoint pastors for each one of them in every town. Paul's overriding assumption. You, this is not, it's not even debatable. You read the book of Acts. Major city, plant churches, raise up pastors, move on. Major city, plant churches, raise up pastors, move on. Paul's whole strategy. Biblical mandate. Biblical mandate. We want to be true. Second big reason, though, we want to be true to the Great Commission. What do I mean? Okay, here's more of the practical now. You guys ready? Numerous new churches are the best ways to really expand the number of non-Christians in a uh, number of Christians in a city. <laughs> do you know what I just said? Oh my gosh! I, you know what I almost said? I said new churches are the best ways to increase non-Christians in a city. <laughs> and some people are going, "Yeah, that's true." <laughs> That's why my friends are not Christian because the churches, these dang churches. Okay. Numerous new churches are the best ways to really expand the number of Christians in a city. Okay. New churches. Okay. Here's what. New churches have to be more effective at reaching three groups of people. First, more effective at reaching the unchurched. What do I mean by unchurched? Unchurched are those people who maybe grew up in church and just walked away from God, walked away from Christianity, walked away from church for years. New churches best reach them. Another group of people who never attended church, maybe attended church once or twice, have nothing to do with Christianity. These two groups of people 
are best reached by new churches. There's tons of demographic study throughout, through, throughout all denominations that get to this. Now check this out, you guys. A new church within three to three years, 70 to 80% of a new church's growth happens with people that are unchurched. In older established churches that are 10 to 15 years older, 60 to 70% of their growth, older established churches, if they grow, happen through what they call transfer growth. In other words, people that are already attending church and saying, oh, I don't like this church. Oh, I'm getting tired of the guys preaching. Oh, I'm getting tired of the worship. Oh, I have fights and conflicts. And so therefore, I'm going to go check out a new church. Older established churches, primarily, if they grow, they grow through transfer growth. New churches. Here's the reason why. Older churches. After a while, do you know what happens to churches? It's happening to our church. That's why we're going to kick like 100 of y'all out to go plant Brownsville. Okay? Older churches, after a while, you start being consumed and most concerned with taking care of the people that are already here. Institutional pressure, internal, you know, internal sort of, you all know that, right? Somebody grew up in church, like all the budget staffing, it all becomes about how do we better care for here and people that are already coming. And some of that is okay and some of that is good. That's why older churches have a level of stability, okay? And a step of sort of respectability, if you will. They've been in the community, they're long, so on and so forth. But here's the thing about new churches. Let me give you an example. I'm sitting at, I'm sitting at a, I'm sitting in my apartment, you know, ready to launch this church with like nine other people, half of them college students that are like 20, 21 years old. And we had kind of our initial meeting of like, God's calling us to plant the church, right? And we had a great meeting, two-hour meeting. And I was like, God, I'm real high. My wife comes home from work, right? She sits down. She's first time she's meeting all of them. Hey, how's it going? They leave, okay? And I go to my wife, what you think, Jenny? We're going to start a church with these guys. My wife goes, are you crazy with them? With them, what? You, I, what? It, it's a good thing I'm a doctor. Else, we'll starve. With them, we're gonna touch. We're gonna we're gonna plant the church with Peter. They're like 20 years old. They don't even have facial hair. You know, some of the guys like they're just babies. How the heck are you gonna plant the church with them? You know. And we had this big fight. We got in a big fight. I'm like, God has called me to plant this church. Blah blah blah. You know. The next time we met, we're sitting around. I'm going, guys, how are we gonna plant this church? <laughs> And we looked around and we said, there's 10 of us. We have to be consumed with who's not a part of this group. And how do we make them a part of this group? We don't have a choice. We don't have, we look at it and going, it could be 10 of us in the next 10 years. Unless we go, who is not here? Why are they not here? What do we need to be creative so that they can come here? What do we need to do a better job reaching them? Who are the people we know? And automatically, a new church in the first two, three years is consumed with not who's there, because not a whole lot of people there, but who's not there and what can we do to reach them? Does that make sense? It's just practical, right? Here's another reason along with that, why new churches do a better job. It was great. It was great. First two, three years of our church. It's still great now, too. First two, three years of our church, people would come, and they would say things like, oh, Pastor Peter, I'm so excited. Why? They go, there's like 10 people I'm going to invite next week. 10 people? 10 people! I just became a Christian like six months ago, and five of them are not even Christians, but I know them. We're great friends. Five of them are people that grew up in church. What you find in the first two years of somebody becoming a Christian is that their automatic network and sphere of influence right there are not a bunch of Christians, are they? No, they're people that hung out with them. Christians, within two years, you know what happens? Their associations and network become almost exclusively Christian after two years. Statistically, 60 to 70% of you guys right now, if I said to you, how many of you guys have significant relationship with non-Christians? 60, 70% of you guys say, I don't have any. How long have you been a Christian? 10 years, 15 years, so on and so forth. 
statistically. Somebody's here, been a Christian less than two years ago. How many non-Christians you know? You, you would have a list of things. Why? Those are the people you're community with. Those are the people. They're your friends. So new church within two, three years, it's full of people who were unchurched but now are in church and worshiping God, part of a church. And not only are they, but they're also just automatically consumed, not with Christians. They don't know any. <laughs> they're consumed with who are the unchristians, who are the unchurched. Yeah, I can invite him. I can minister. Does that make sense? Much more effective. It's just a natural, organic thing. A new church is much more effective in reaching the unchurched. But secondly, a new church is also more effective in reaching the new generation. Can I, can I, can I share a secret with you? Do you know that when we started this church, part of the desire for us to start this church was to reach age group of 18 to 30-some-year-olds. We didn't make it, you know, we didn't go out and say, we want to reach, because the reality is you can't say that at a church. Like, if you're not in this age group, you're not welcome. Apparently, some people say, no, you guys do that indirectly. Like, if you're not in this, you know. We, we basically said, hey, but, but here's the thing. Somebody once came up to me and asked, like, why, why do you want to reach that group? You know what I said? Statistically, less than 3% of 18 to 32-year-olds in, in this country, less than 3% attend church. They're the least church age group in the entire country and, many people say, the most difficult to reach. Most skeptical of God, most skeptical of a church. Most difficult group to reach. I just want to pause and say something for a moment here. Anybody in our church that's been a part of it amazed at how many 18 to 30-some-year-olds attend our church and are growing and are blessed? Anybody? Clap if you are. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. And I know our church. And our church kind of has this, like, what do we need to fix mentality? So I get a lot of people that come and go, when is our church going to be multi-generational? And I'm going, you're 18, I'm almost 40. We are (laughs) multi-generational. I'm serious. It's like, you know, when are we going to, and I understand what they're saying. I understand their hearts, but it's like so encouraging to me, you know, when like a Korean mom or a Korean dad, I'm going to pick on Koreans, I'm Korean, you know, comes up to me after service and going, oh, pastor, this is so amazing. Look at these people. Look at all these young people in our church. That's my dad. Look at all these young people in our church. Bless God. Bless you. And I go, yeah, it is amazing. But people in our church in their 20s, it's kind of like, Oh, yeah, you know, there was like 600-some people in Easter service last week, but, you know, that happens everywhere. You know, are you kidding me? Here's what I want to say. I'm not, I'm not saying our church is all that. Can we just celebrate the work that God is doing and the fact that tons of young people, new generation, they will not be reached, are here in our church, drawing near to God and worshiping Him. Can we celebrate that? It's great. Absolutely. We need to do that. We need to do that. Because here's the thing, you guys. Listen, listen. I'm not going to be able to reach the young generation forever. You know? I mean, I'm trying really, really hard. Can you, you know what I mean? I mean, I am just trying so, I'm trying, I'm trying so hard, you know? I know some of y'all are like, why didn't he tuck in his shirt, you know? Like, what's the deal? Like, what's the tie? You know, I'm trying so hard. I'm like, I said, I'm pushing 40, you know? I'm trying so hard, the hair, like to be relevant and to be connect, you know what I mean? But listen, listen. Do it. By the way, if you're sitting there going, will you just tuck in your shirt? You know why you're saying that? Because you're not very cool. Okay, anyway. So, so it's like, like why? 
So, so here's the thing I want to say. Here's the thing I want to say, okay? Look, I, I'm not going to be able to reach the 20s forever. You know, I mean, the reality is this shirt will be tucked in five years, okay? I'm just saying. In five years, I'm not going to be one of those pastors up here going, you know, with the earrings. and the, I'm, I'm totally stereotyping now. You know, I'm like, I'm 60 years old, but I can still relate to Look, I'm having a hard time relating. It's a mentality, not an age, but I'm having a hard time. And here's the thing. The reason why I am so passionate, so motivated, and the reason why I will not apologize for the fact that there are, uh, this, our generation is flocking, to, I will not apologize for the fact that they're flocking here because when I look at scripture and look at church history, do you know who God has used to impact and change the world? Young people. It's an undeniable fact. Read history. I'm a big history buff. But even biblically, I mean, let me give you some examples. Joseph. In Old Testament, he had a vision and a dream of greatness when he was only 17 years old, Genesis. David was a teenager when he slew Goliath. Samuel was just a little boy when he first heard God's voice in the temple. Mary was like 13 or 14 when she was commissioned with this amazing thing to give birth to the Son of God. So I said this morning, when you look at it that way, Jesus was practically over the hill, man. I mean, he was 30. He was 30 years old. D.L. Moody, Billy Graham, 19 years old. The list goes on and on. God has used 19, 20, 21, 20 year olds to impact and change the world for his kingdom. And God has given me this burning passion to, you know, look stupid if I need to, act dumb if I need to, to say, what can I do so that I can light a fire in that 22 year old who will change the kingdom for Jesus? That's why I do what I do. And I will not apologize for the fact that we will plant churches where there'll be a bunch of 18, 19-year-olds who will show up and complain about the fact that we're not more multi-generational. <laughs> Julio's going to come up at the end, you guys, and give a little bit about what we're going to be doing in Colombia and church planting and how there are maybe 150 to 200 young adults in Colombia and Medellin in July when Julio and I go back with some folks to lead a conference. There's a revival, I believe, and a renewal happening in the country of Colombia, and it's going to begin with 22, 24, 25-year-olds, and I can't wait to be a part of that. I can't wait. For the rest of you guys that are part of my generation, Byron and the rest of you guys, this doesn't mean that our church is not welcoming to you. Please, please, don't, don't misunderstand. Can I just say that? Can I just throw that out there? Okay. Lastly, new churches, new churches, new churches are more effective in reaching the new residents. New residents. Did you guys uh, know that every single church that was planted in the city of Chicago was a church plant at some point? <laughs> Did you think about that? It was like people just showed up and go, oh, there's a church. No, no, no. There were churches that were planted. Let me give an example. Logan Square. Logan Square in the 1940s, was filled with Norwegians. Anybody from the Norwegian, Scandinavian background? Raise your hands if you are. Okay, that's a handful of you guys. Filled with Norwegians. Now, when they showed up, there were no Norwegian churches. So you know what? There were a group of evangelists, a group of evangelists from Norway that actually showed up to Chicago and planted these Norwegian-speaking churches that would reach out to the immigrants. 20, 30 years later, demographic change. Guess who started showing up? Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Mexicans, South Americans, Central Americans. Here's what happened. Somebody said, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's right. We took over. Okay. Um, so here's, here's what happened. Here's what happened. Norwegian churches, group of community, you know. And by the way, there's like two Norwegian churches right down the block. And it's, it's one of those things that's just like, ah, oh, there's like 30 people in this Norwegian church. 
They're in their 60s and 70s that have been here for 70 years. And the community has drastically changed. So what happened in the 60s and 70s? Bunch of, so what happened was all of a sudden these Spanish-speaking or Hispanic churches started being planted because somebody said, how do we reach the new immigrants? Every single church in the city of Chicago was planted to reach new residents. Now, I need to get something off my chest. Everybody say, go ahead. Okay. It's a tricky thing for our church to talk about new residents because you and I both know. Let me, give you, let, me give you an exa- let me give you an example. So, I was talking to somebody who is a Christian, who's a Christian, let me make that clear, who's not a part of this church. And this person was bemoaning the fact that all these new residents are moving into the city and they're, re- they're resenting it. And, and, and he said something along the lines of, those people move into these communities. And by the way, those people is sort of code word for, in some circles, white people and Asians, Okay. Okay, so all these white Asians have been moving into these communities, and, and, and I understand his heart. He said, and they do more harm than good. They come into these communities, you know, they, 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 they just get what they need, and then they leave. And this person then went on to say, they're not welcomed here. And even if they come, we're not going to reach out to them. And I paused for a moment, and, and, and I just gently said, can you tell me how that's the gospel and how that's Jesus? How is it the gospel to Jesus say, even if, in your opinion, they're clueless people, let's just, you know, for the sake of argument, they're quote clueless how is it the gospel and, 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 and then Jesus to say to these people that are in the city of Chicago, young men and women, all of all the, the different ages, so on and so forth, how is it the gospel Jesus to say to these people, you're not welcomed here, you're not deserving of the gospel, so we're not going to reach out to you. Would somebody please tell me how that's gospel and how that's Jesus? Hmm? So I was talking to another person who knows what I do as a pastor. And this person says to me, don't you hate Peter, man? These, you know, young yuppies, you know, drinking their lattes and walking their dogs on Logan Boulevard. I just wish they would leave. To which I said, you mean people like me. (laughs) Although I don't drink lattes and I don't have a dog. Here's what I said. I asked for the Holy Spirit to give me gentleness because I could have, and I said this. I said, you know what? I said, you know what? I agree with you. The reality is the certain parts of the new movement into the city has done more harm than good in communities. But I said, we hope to be a church that would be able to reach these new residents who may not know Jesus and could care less if they're good neighbors, could care less about the community. We want to be able to reach out to them and saying, we want you to know Jesus. So the first thing that you'll start thinking about is, how do I become a better neighbor? Isn't that the gospel? So I said to him, I said, you know, our church is failing in some ways. Our church isn't doing well in other ways. We have a long way to go. But I believe that with God's help, we'll get there. And we want to be a church that's able to reach out to these new residents and help them be better neighbors as we learn from each other about what it means to bring wholeness and healing to the whole city. What do you think about that answer? Say amen if you agree with that. Y'all, white Asian people, you'd be like, amen. I mean, that's for you. Because here's the thing. There is this this sort of unhealthy thing where we talk about, you know what, Peter, there's so much more that we could do in these communities. And yes, I am absolutely in agreement with that. I myself personally need to learn what it means to be a better neighbor to the entire city of Chicago, starting in this community. But as a Christian... 
who's been called by God. My heart also goes out to these new residents, some of them who look like me, who talk like me, to say, I want you to know Jesus so that you can learn to not only love God, but love your neighbors as yourself. And that we as a church can't do either or, that we as a church need to do both and. Amen? I'm done with the whole new residence thing. I just, I, I just wanted to thank you for letting me get off my chest. Uh, we're almost done here. Uh, fourth big reason is we want to expand the base for other ministries in the city. What do I mean? Why is church planting important? Church plants new churches within, a, within, within the first couple of years need sort of outside funding to, to get it off the ground because the church can't just, you know, come, there's the money and resources that are needed. But here's the thing about a church. See, the city of Chicago needs all kinds of ministries to youth, to single bombs, to the homeless. There's all kinds of ministries. And a lot of the ministries in the city are completely dependent on funding from outside sources to pay the staff, to pay facilities. It's just the nature of those ministries. And we're not knocking them. We need those ministries. But there are tons and tons of ministries in the city that are vitally dependent on giving of godly men and women in churches, right? Here's what a church does. A church doesn't add on to just another group of people that need support. A church eventually becomes not the object of support, but becomes a source of it. Churches and men and women within churches become the base of support for a lot of these ministries, parachurch ministries, so on and so forth, within the city to be able to do well and thrive. Where do you think, for example, people that work on college campuses get their support from? Some of them from private donors, but a lot of them get from churches. And we want to be able to do more of that. Where do you think people that work for, for example, some of these nonprofit organizations that deal with issues of abuse and homelessness, they are dependent on churches as well as private donors. And we want to be the kind of church that plants more churches that will not just be about itself, but be able to support and fund more of these ministries so it can be more of God's work. Does that make sense? Okay. So one of the best ways to enlarge the base of kingdom supporters is to enlarge the base of kingdom people who will come to love Jesus. And new churches can do that. A um, couple more here, and then we're done. Uh, new churches. Oh, we, want, we want to continually renew the whole body of Christ. Here's the fourth big reason, if you will. Uh, fourth big reason why we need to plant churches. We want to continually renew the whole body of Christ. You guys, I'm going to say this once, and I'm going to make it real clear. It is an error to say we have to choose, Peter, between helping churches that are struggling and helping churches that are, and we have to choose between that and choose church planting because there are a lot of churches in our community, other communities that are struggling. We have to choose one or the other. And that's actually a fallacy, and I'll give you a little, I'll give you some reasons why. It's not an either or, it's a both and. We need to both, frankly, in my personal opinion, it is planting of new healthy churches that will benefit the churches that are struggling. Let me give you some examples about one is that a new church will often bring new ideas to the body of Christ. What do I mean? Here's the thing about churches, older established churches. The great thing is, again, there's stability, there's tradition, there's all kinds of things that some people frankly need, and they need to be a part of those churches. But a lot of times, old churches, established churches, kind of get into this mindset of, you know, we've always done it that way. Do you know what I'm talking about? The whole sacred cow, like, we couldn't, that'll never work here. Why? Well, we tried it 15 years ago. How do you know it won't work now? We tried it 15 years ago, it won't work here. What does a new church do? A new church comes in and says, hey, you know that thing that you don't want to try, that you tried maybe 15 years ago, didn't work? God is blessing it, and there's kingdom fruit being, being born. And all of a sudden, an old church will look at it and go, oh, wow, you know what? We're doing these amazing things in our church, but we haven't been able to do that. And God's actually using some other ministries to do that. Well, we could do that too. And it becomes a supportive networking thing where all of a sudden, new ideas come, new vision comes, so on and so forth, okay? So there's sharing of new ideas. Old church is learning from the new, new church is learning from the old. Great, great synergy. Secondly, secondly, 
New churches not only bring uh, 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 new ideas, but they also surface creative, strong leaders for the whole body. In older congregations, what do leaders emphasize? Leaders emphasize tradition, tenure, how long have you been here, routine, as well as kinship ties. You know, who do you know, who do you not know? New congregations, though, and this happened in our church, new churches, new congregations, you know, innately and automatically sort of draw very venturesome, innovative, creative people. They've got crazy ministries. They go to the churches and go, what do you think? Churches go, no. New churches, kind of like, sure, why not? We've never done it, so we don't know if it'll work or not. And leaders come who thrive on creativity, innovation. Leaders thrive on just thinking outside the box. And although they might hit some closed doors in older established churches, they come to new churches and go, wow, there's all kinds of room for us to do ministry here. New churches will often surface creative, strong leaders for the body. Third, new churches also, in terms of benefiting the whole body, will challenge other churches to self-examination. And I want to submit this very humbly. Here's what I mean. Every single church needs self-examination about who are we, what's our vision, what's our identity, why are we here, why are we what we're doing. That's a question that churches need to ask every day, every week. And oftentimes what happens to some older established churches is that they lose their vision, they lose their mission, they lose their identity. Who are we? And what happens when new churches arise and God is using them They're able to look at the new churches and go, you know what? What's God doing there? And what are the things that they're not able to do that God has blessed us to do? God has blessed us to do. What are the things that we have the resources to do? And it helps clarify an older church's, existing church's mission, vision. Who are we to reach? Why are we to reach them? How are we going to reach them? Another thing that leads to sometimes is that churches, and ours happens too, we get into this mode of pessimism and doubt about what God can do and God can't do. And it brings about something to repentance like, God, we repent and ask for forgiveness for limiting you, doubting you, thinking that you're real small when you're real big. Okay? Uh, And D, new churches also become effective evangelistic feeder for a whole community. Guys, there are two groups of people who've come to our church that I've had to bless and say go. One, there are a group of people who came and said, Pastor Peter, this church plant thing, six, seven-year-old church, there's constant instability, there's a certain level of immaturity. It's like, when are we going to get to that place where we can just, you know, cruise? To which I really want to say, never. That's never going to be us. We're going to be this, ah, you know. Michael, will you explain to people, yeah, what that is after church, okay? Because, you know, we and I talked about that. Um, but So I've had to say to some people who come and say, Pastor Peter, I came to know Jesus through this church, and I love this church. But you know what? I feel like God's calling me to go to a church that's more established where I can go in these other areas of my life. You know what I go? I give them a big hug and a big kiss if they're guys, and I go, go. <laughs> okay? I go, go, God bless you, because there's stage in life where they need to be. We need to be able to bless people and say, yeah, you need to go. Here's another. There are ethnic folks who've come to our church. For example, Korean-Americans. I've had two, three Korean-American young people come to our church and say, Pastor Peter, I grew up in the Korean church. I left that because I got burned out fried. Didn't ever want to go back to that. I came to a new community. God healed me. God restored me. And God did amazing things in my life. He has enlarged my kingdom to see the multi-ethnic just as part of what God is about. But at this time now, Pastor Peter, I feel God calling me back to my local church. They don't have a youth pastor. They don't have a children. They don't have volunteers. And the church is only about 100 people, and they're really struggling. What do you think? You know, I go, give them a big hug, give them a kiss, they're guys, and I go, hey, you know what? You know what? I thank God that I had the opportunity to be your pastor during this season to prepare and equip you so that we can release you for the larger kingdom work. Isn't that great? That's what our church has been able to do. We become an evangelistic feeder for the whole community, okay? Now, lastly, big picture thing, and then we got some exciting things coming. Why is church planning so crucially important? It's an exercise in kingdom-mindedness. Let me put it this way, you guys. Anytime a church is planted in a community, 
it'll draw 70, 80% of its, new, its people from the ranks of the unchurched. In other words, there are people who are not connected to the church, so on and so forth. But there's always going to be a small percentage of people who are attending church. It happened to our church, who are already attending churches. And they're going to have to leave those churches in order to come and do this new venture. Now, here's the thing. Pastors and leaders of that church that needs to let go of these two, three people so they can do this launch thing, they have a decision. They could either go, we're about the kingdom, and so we're going to bless the fact that even though we're sad, we're losing two, three families, that they're going to reach hundreds more people throughout the city of Chicago with the gospel. So we're going to rejoice in that. Or they can go, we don't want to lose two, three families. We don't care about how many people they're reaching and become turf-oriented. Some of y'all know what churches. So older established churches have a decision to make. When a new church arises, well, they say, we want to partner with you. I want to give you our leaders. Go. Or will they say, no, no, we're not, we're not, we're not giving. Here's how it affects us, okay? Let me, there's also a word of correction and rebuke for our church when I talk about kingdom-mindedness in two ways. Number one, number one. If we really believe that the kingdom of God is here, and that God is at work everywhere, and that we are not this lone savior. We are not what we need to do, and we need to do a better job of, and I submit that to you humbly as your pastor. What we need to do a better job of is working with and partnering with other organizations, other churches, other ministries. Okay? Some of y'all extend grace to your pastor because this is one of my weaknesses, you know. I've got this very strong independent streak in me. And so one of the things at Logan Square Congregation, we've had to learn through this is when we came, yes, we didn't come with savior mentality, but we didn't do as good a job of partnering with other ministries, other church organizations. And we're having to relearn that. And that's okay. We're going in that. So as we plant more churches, a question is asked by the whole church. Hey, are we going to go do that by ourselves again? Or what are the ministries we're partnering with? And you have the right to ask us that. And we can go, here they are. Here are the 10 ministries organizations we're going to partner with. We're going to do it together. Because there's not one church, not one denomination that can do all the work. We are together. One last thing. You know what's going to happen five, ten years from now? We're going to be in Logan Square. I'm going to be like 55 years old. I'm probably going to wear like two-piece suit like Michael, you know. And, 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 and look, and look, and look. No, 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 no. Look, look very gentlemanly. Look very professional, you know. Like, what is this? You know what I mean? Like, tuck in your shirt for crying out loud. Anyway, so, so we're going to five, ten years from now. And here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen five, ten years from now in my office. There's going to be this 22-year-old guy who's going to show up. He's going to be like, hey, uh, Peter, uh, we're new in the community, you know, and uh, we're thinking about planting a church, you know, and given that you're like 55 years old, man, and you can't, no, he's going to say, given, given that your church started uh, with, with this mission for this, we are desperately looking for some leaders who will help us launch this church that will reach this community in the city of Chicago. Will you uh, partner with us? And I'll remember to April 19, 2009, and the sermon that I preached in front of all y'all was going to be a podcast. And I will look into that young man and say, you know what? Absolutely. Who do you need that we can perhaps send to partner with you so God could use you? That's my prayer. We have an incredible, Julio, come on up, come on up. We have an incredible, incredible, incredible video of our church plant in Bronzeville. With, with Carlos and, 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 and Michelle uh, and this church that's well underway, okay? Julio, um, come on up, brother. Okay, so he, here's the deal, you guys, Nathan. Here's the deal. And I forgot to say this in the first service, like, like an idiot. It was like the most important thing, you know, of the sermon. And Nathan's like, why don't you talk about that? You know why the sermon title is 5 and 10? I, feel, I believe that the Lord has given us a vision and a mission to plant five churches in the next 10 years. 
See, I forgot to say this at the nine o'clock. I feel like such an idiot. Julio, and they walked out of here going, boy, that was a lot of loosest nonsense. You know, five churches in 10 years, and there's one underway that hopefully we can launch by January. I mean, it's been in the works in Bronzeville. You're going to hear testimony of Michelle and Carlos, key leaders to this, and why they want to see God's church planted there. But Julio here and Katie might be our second church, maybe year two, two and a half down the line, as they go to Colombia. At the Colombia, Yes. And so what I asked Julio to do, just a couple minutes of the church that he envisions planting with his wife, Katie, and the group of people. Okay, uh, before I moved here to Chicago, I was working with the Covenant Church in Colombia. And when we moved here, we didn't know what we were going to do when we returned to Colombia. And we, we, we came to a new community. We saw this group of people these very young people worshiping God, and we say, wow, it's something that could happen in Colombia too. And in Colombia, there are about 35 uh, covenant churches that are, they, are, they have been doing an amazing job uh, reaching their generation. But, it, but there, there are a lot of young people in our churches who are looking for places where they can feel that they are uh, able to worship God together as a young generation. And when we were in Colombia with Peter, uh, we spent a day with maybe 10 uh, people from 18 to 30 years old. And they were sharing about their desire to uh, reach the younger generation in Medellin. Mm. So we think the church planting is something that could, uh, is through church planting, we are able to reach the younger generation in our city in Medellin, Colombia. So that's why we, we think that we want to do something like that in Colombia. And being there and listening to Peter's sermon is, has been something so amazing for me. And every day I'm thinking, wow, God, I want to do that. God, I want to do that. And always I've been praying about that. And Peter is excited about that. The problem is that I'm over 30 now, so I don't know if I'm ready for that. <laughs> Here's what you do. You wear a tie without tucking your shirt in. Okay. That's what you do. Okay, I will do that. That's what you do. It'll work. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Julio and I are going to be going in July to spend probably three days with, like I said, 150, possibly even up to 200 young people in a conference sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing an amazing renewal perhaps happen. I've said this before. I'm willing to take like two, three people that are wanting to just come and see God at work and just, you don't have to do anything. Just come and see God at work and, you know, basically be our, like, Aaron people. Anyway, so two, three people that want, I'm just kidding about that. Two, three people, you have to pay your own airfare. I need to get this in. You have to own airfare and lodging and so on and so forth. But if you can do that, you are more than welcome to come with us so you can see an amazing thing about God's stone. We're going to capture something on video, but it's going to be different than just seeing it live. Here is Carlos and Michelle sharing about their church in Bronzeville and the heart for that. a long, long time ago, uh, the Chicago Defender, uh, African-American newspaper, uh, actually had a, uh, I guess they want to increase their publication, so they had a contest. I guess this writer came up with Bronzeville. He figured that African-Americans kind of had a neutral skin color of bronze. It wasn't black or, or yellow. It was uh, actually bronze. And so he said, Mayor Bronzeville contest. So 
most real estate maps, you won't see Bronzeville, but all over here, that's just the name of it, Bronzeville. When I first got here, I thought, well, maybe it's called it's the Brownstone. <laughs> maybe there's a building. To, maybe there's a bronze factory here, but uh, that's actually how Bronzeville got its name. We are close to the Dan Ryan. We're close to Lakeshore Drive. We're close to 31st Street. Uh, we're close to the Green Line train stop, the Red Line train stop. We drive five minutes and we're at the South Loop. One of the reasons we liked um, Bronzeville um, was because um, I'm familiar with the neighborhood. I used to go to Illinois Institute of Technology that's not far from here. I wanted to be in a, in a community that was predominantly black, but I also wanted to be in a, in a community that was racially, ethnically diverse. And it's just such a, a diverse community. There's even um, students that are here for the first time to, in the country. There's recent uh, immigrants, cab drivers, the poor people that live in city housing. There's people who lived here since the golden jazz age. Well, I love the African-American heritage because um, a lot of the um, early uh, jazz spots were right on 35th Street. In fact, there's an Ace Hardware where it used to be the back of it, used to be the stage where a lot of the jazz greats used to play. And there's a lot of pride in the neighborhood because of that, because you have people who've been here for years, so they take pride in their homes. In different places, you'll run into folk, and if you're willing to hear, they want to talk about, you know, like the neighborhood back in the day. And I love um, having a university setting and um, the socioeconomic uh, levels of, of the different people here. And the beach was nice, too, yeah. that I could walk to the beach. <laughs> I grew up in, um, in East Palo Alto, California, and Stanford University is right up the street. So it was always nice to live, you know, in a college town to see college students around, and um, and so you get the same feel here because you get to see students walking around and doing stuff. The school has a, a large Asian population. Um, we're next to uh, Chinatown. Yeah. Uh, we're next to uh, Pilsen, Bridgeport. The growing Hispanic population that's coming. There's not a lot of churches like. I would say none, like New Community, that has diversity. Um, it's always funny how much the church is blessed and the church learns from the activities and is blessed from being in the community, from the community. We call the church New Community, and I just want to see that community, not just a few people that drive and come to a building and leave, but that overall connection uh, uh, throughout the community that's the church is so integrated in the community that you can't see the difference between New Community and Bronzeville. And the fact that like one church in Logan Square cannot encompass the whole city with so many different cultures and so many separate neighborhood issues and so many different socioeconomic levels in each community. I think um, having uh, that city within the city, um, which is great because New Community and you have this uh, group of people that are Christians, but you can also associate that with having a, a city within this community in Bronzeville, and the city is this partnership with Christians in Logan Square, and wherever else the Lord may guide us. So I think it's, it's a really uh, a compliment to the mission statement of New Community to do that. I am excited for city within the city, uh, Christians gathering and reaching out and helping and partnering and serving in Bronzeville. 
I wanted to just say that God has been doing an amazing work in the lives of men and women, and I have the fortune to hear that because I get emails on a regular basis of the way that God is using men and women to impact you. But if you are somebody that has been impacted by the church as we get ready to plant the church, just thank God in terms of just applauding him and saying, Lord, we thank you for the work that you have doing to men and women of this church as we continue to expand. So as we stand up, can we just give God a hand and say, God, we thank you. We thank you for the work that you are doing. We thank you for the work that you are doing, God. Yes, God. Yes, God. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you are doing and you are continue to do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We pray with me. God, we, we, we come today, Lord, and, and we are just absolutely amazed and blown away by the fact that you could use um, broken vessels to, to impact your kingdom. And Lord, we thank you for this amazing opportunity to partner with you, to work along with you, advancing your kingdom throughout the city of Chicago. And God, as we, as we with, with, with your help, envision planting five more churches in the city and throughout the world, we pray and ask Jesus that you would empower us, that you would help us. God, we need you. We need you to expand and to further your glory, your name, and your fame here and abroad. You're the God of this city. You're the King of these people. You're the Lord of this nation. You are. You're the light in this darkness. Greater things, God. God, as we sing that, as we shout that as our anthem, God, I pray that we will not just sing it, we will not just, we will not just proclaim words, but that we would say, God, I want to be an answer to that. I want to be a part in that. God, I want to be an agent in that, God. God, I want to be somebody, God, who will partner and be your vessel in seeing great things happen in this city. God, help us to get off our butts. And no longer be spectators sitting in the sidelines watching something go by. Help us to jump in and say, God, use me. God, use me. I'm available. I'm here. As you use us to fulfill your mission, five and ten years, God, we boldly go forth. Because we know that you are an amazing, powerful faithful God of the entire universe. And all of God's people said, and all of God's people said, amen. Join with us. Pray for us. Live as kingdom people. Have a great week, you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next Sunday.